You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about. Okay, there we go. And we are live. Hey, people. How are you doing? Welcome to episode 80. 80, 80, 80. What a great sounding number. That's where we are. Episode 80 of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. And if you're joining us live, then that means you've joined us on the Sports Therapy Association Facebook page or maybe listening on YouTube, in which case you can feel free to comment and ask our guests questions. And when you do say something, then your little logo and question comes up on the screen. It's a great way of networking. Uh, my name is Matt Phillips. Um, I'm the creator of RunChatLive.com and also the host of the Sports Therapy Association podcast. And this show goes out every Tuesday at 8 o'clock UK time, which is GMT at the moment. Um, to try and help spread the good word and help therapists evolve in a nice, friendly um, way without threatening anyone. Um, you will hear me talking to people. If people are joining the, the um, live show now, we've got Stevie Barr here. And that's what happens when I click on their name. We get Stevie Barr, who's able to bring up his little logo and say, yo, um, Brian Huxley is here as well. Hey, Brian, people are filling up. Fantastic. Good to see you. And hi, Catherine, as well. So if you can join us live in future, wicked. It's a lovely networking opportunity to spend time with other therapists. You don't have to be an STA member. Um, it's all nice and friendly. Um, but you do get a little chance to hang out with some STA members and hear what it's all about anyway. Right then, so while people are filling up in the room, um, I just want to say thank you to last week's guest in episode 79. Um, in case you weren't aware, then the December for us is the topic of fascia special effects there um that was for tiny she asked if i could do that special effect again um so yeah we um it's a slightly new now we've reached kind of like the shattering 80 episodes of sports therapy association podcast yeah we're doing like a an, a topic a month so december is going to be fascia fascia, fascia fascia and i think in january we might be doing um i think we might be doing crossfit 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 hasn't got the same ring and then i think we're going to do something on feet and ankle and then probably probably do like a knee and hip and work our way up that way um so um it gives you an idea of what we're doing for the month and you can join us next week after today's expert panel then we're going to have um a chance for um just a whole group discussion we'll have a few sta members up here maybe some non-sta members i'm not sure i might have to veto them but the idea is we're gonna have three or four people on screen at a time talking about what our illustrious guests from last week for example julian baker of functional anatomy and anna barrett of evolve movement education had to say and also, they will be scrutinising and commenting heavily on what um, Sir Walt Fritz and Tanya Velasquez um, have to say tonight. So make notes. Um, obviously, you can ask our guest questions tonight. But next week's the big time we're going to have a talk about fascia. What have we learned? Are we surprised by anything? Do we disagree with anything? How is it going to affect? The most important thing about tonight is how is it going to affect what you do in clinic for the rest of your lives? That's the kind of little thing which I want to make sure that you all walk away with today. You're going to change something. You're going to tweak it. Do you feel threatened? Hopefully not. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Okay. People are still filling up the lounge, which is lovely. Nice to see you all. Thanks so much for joining. If you are listening to the podcast, um, then thank you very much. If you could be so kind as to leave a rating, that would be great. Um, hopefully a five. If it's anything less than a three, then just don't bother. Go away. Don't come back. Um, because that's how it raises our level on Google. It's not to make money at all. We make, believe me, nothing out of it. But it's just getting the good word out there. So if you leave a rating, leave a little review, it just helps Google means we, we go up higher. So when someone puts fascia in, they'll see us and they'll see our guests as opposed to another fascia Monday of how to lengthen this or do that or put this back together again, which we don't really need up high in Google. We need them to go down and we need us to go up. So that's the plan. 
Um, so without further ado, I think I will introduce um, our for tonight. So we're going to have the pleasure of being joined by Walt Fritz, who was a guest previously, I think January at the beginning of the year. Um, and also Tanya Velasquez, who I thought was going to be joining us from the Bronx, but in fact is in sunny Florida. A slight change there. Um, but yeah, that's who's going to be joining us. And like I say, big opportunity, two real big names in the world of fascia. Um, so do ask questions. And I know for a fact that these two are very hard um, exoskeleton kind of shell things. They've been there. They've been in the front line. Feel free to challenge what they say and ask them stuff. Okay, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'm really glad that they're joining us. So without further ado, I shall bring them up. Uh, Will Walt Fritz and Tanya Velasquez. Howdy. Hey, guys. Howdy. How are you? Hey, Tanya. How are you? Very well. I'm very excited. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Walt. You're in, are you still in New York? Are you in New York? I'm in Western New York. Western New York. But you've been traveling around a bit, haven't you? You've been across the States a little bit, haven't you, and moving around? No, no, just uh, basically Western New York in sort of a rural um, place people don't think of when they think of New York. Ah, uh, lots, lots of cows and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But you've been tra traveling on planes and stuff the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, traveling a lot, a lot recently, and just finished my last class two days ago. So I'm happy to be home for at least a month. Fantastic, lovely. And Tanya, you're actually in Florida, aren't you? Visiting family. Yes, I live in Brooklyn, New York, but um, I'm visiting, so yeah, you have you have a much nicer background. I know, it's, so it doesn't look real, but it is. It really is real, people. So thank you both so much for joining us. Um, so, yeah, as you know, we've talked a little bit about this off air. It's um, the second episode in our month of fascia. Um, for people who haven't met you before and don't know about you, um, then would you be so kind as to let me know, um, whoever wants to start first, you only get 60 seconds. No, I'm lying. You get about two minutes. Let us know how your relationship with fascia started. Where are you coming from? Who's going to go first? Go ahead. I'm going to let the boss go first. You, after you, Walt. What's that? Uh, you want me to go first? Okay. All right. So um, my name is Walt Fritz. And just as an FYI, I am still a frontline worker. I mean, I, I still am seeing patients on a regular basis here at my little clinic in uh, upstate New York. Uh, but as you can see by my lack of hair, I've been doing this work for a long time. And um, I, I, you know, 1992, I started my first myofascial release training here in the States from John Barnes, which some of you may have heard his name. Um, and I kind of went down the fascia rabbit hole and I really enjoyed that narrative. I took everything he had to offer. I worked for John as a teaching assistant for 10 years, traveling around the country, helping others to treat fascia, helping others to um, help people, really. Um, I was deeply embedded in that model so much so that it was really hard to extricate myself. But I finally did in about 2006 do a lot of unfortunate events that don't need to be talked about here. But after I left, I, I kind of just sort of had an awakening in terms of looking around my rabbit hole um, from, at other people. It's like, what are you doing? You're doing stuff that looks remarkably similar to what I do for a living, but yet you're explaining it in completely different ways. And that was the start of my undoing and rebuilding and evolving into this person I am now, which is someone who doesn't treat their fascia or treat their nerve or treat their muscle. It's basically, I've got a human being in front of me and that's who I pay attention to. And you know, if fascia can change the way people say, that's lovely, but I'm, I'm worried more about the person in front of me and not their fascia underneath everything. So that's who I am in a, in a, in a 90 second nutshell. So there you go, Tanya. 
Beautifully done. Thank you, Walt. I'm sure we'll refer back to your history because it is a massive history. In, in Therapy Expo recently, I mentioned you a few times in between different presenters, and it was kind of like something out of Rocky Four. In fact, I think I did a Rocky Four kind of um, kind of Sylvester Stone accent with that whole thing. If you can change, and I can change, and he can change, we can all change. It was kind of a big thing. I often use it as you because you were really there with the pioneers, selling it all, believing it all, and doing some great work with it. In theory, people walking out really happy, and then you really did manage to turn it around after critically appraising everything and receiving kind of what was quite hostile debates at the time and so much simpler stuff but then you come back around and you're still a fantastic manotherapist and you've shown that it can be done however far you are on the other side so credit to you i just want to check before tanya explains her past um gary benson in the house mentions that it seems a bit quiet can someone answer gary are you hearing us okay people um I can hear them both fine. So just, yeah, let me know if you've got any problems, anybody else with the sound. In the meantime, Tanya, yes, what's your story, Tanya? So my story is I, I became a massage therapist for the first time. Got my license in 1994 at the ripe age of 18 years old. Um, I'll let you all do the math there. Um, um, yeah, I didn't know anything. You know, the, the educations. I'd like to think a bit more different now as we discussed, maybe not. Um, and of course, was uh, just curious about a lot of different things. So I, if it's any indicator of how far my journey has expanded, right, or how much I've evolved, is when I first finished, I was kind of helping to organize Reiki circles and how I give message. Other, that's a different show. <laughs> but but um, yeah, now I do um, none of that so much. And of course, was... So the 90s, I think, kind of like the fascia fashion. And fascia is a, you know, super, um, and coming out. And then it was the thing everybody was talking about. As you say with your sound effects. Fascia, 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 fascia. Right? And of course, it was like this mystical, magical, it's all connected to the tissue. And of course, I ran with that for, for many years. Um, fast forward. Nearly 15, almost 20 years later, I didn't start teaching until I figured, well, I've made enough mistakes to, to be able to impart hopefully some wisdom <laughs> to people, right? Uh, so I was doing, um, working as a, a, as a massage and manual therapist for a while before I got into teaching. When I started, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be a science-based educator. Little did I know that, um, that kind of this house of cards of everything that I once believed and thought was about to come to crash around. So I started doing my research and here's my course curriculum and started pulling stuff up, came across, I don't know if you know Walt, the Soma Simple um, forum. Oh, and that was, uh, that was kind of like the, the, the rude awakening that I received. Angry and all these things. And um, about two years of angry and fighting against this newer reality that's very difficult to embrace when after, after investing so much time, effort, energy into a certain belief system, narrative, method of working, um, and hands-on application, which I still love, but hands-on approach. Um, and yeah, that was when my journey started to change. I, through Soma Simple, discovered a lot of Diane Jacobs' work. She's been an incredible mentor to me. Um, yeah, and I 
was very fortunate to take a class with Walt. What was it about a couple years ago? Walt was awesome. Yeah, I think it was about three years ago down downtown New York. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me again. And um, he likes chocolate chip cookies. What? <laughs> you like chocolate chip chocolate cookies? Chip cookies. I, did. I did. Yeah, I do. I'm trying not to now, but oh. yes, I do. Yeah. Excellent. So the important thing is, which I want people to really take on board tonight, is you have both come from backgrounds where you were very much into what was happening at the time, you know, really applied, still looking around, really getting into it and learning of other people around you, whether it was Reiki, whether it was the myofascial release and really dedicated therapists. And it was when you started um, looking at a little bit more of the science, um, then there was a shock. And I think Soma Simple, when I first looked at Soma Simple, it was mainly about running. And I saw kind of like the hardcore podiatrists there attacking Blaise Dubois and attacking, you know, it was just, you know, the barefoot running craze taking off. And it was really ugly. And I think that's what made me realize this is, I can learn from this, but it's not healthy. All it's teaching me is don't be that guy or that guy. You know, because they're both shouting really offensive. And I'm amazed that that didn't teach the world. But that was a bit before Internet really took off. And Twitter's still the same. It's, it's a shame. But I like the fact that you both point out that it is a rude awakening. And because I'm really conscious of that, because people hopefully who listen to the podcast, if you have seen something online, it's in capital letters and it's saying um, there's no point in manual therapy and don't do this. And you think you're doing what and basically making you feel insecure. Ignore it. Don't worry about that. What we're going to do tonight with the help of these two people have been there is make you realize that we're not, you're not chucking everything aside. You haven't wasted any money at all because you are you. And all we're going to do tonight is tweak a little bit um, and make it better for you. Open doors. It's all a very positive thing. So with that in mind, with that in mind, oh, one thing, Tanya, when you talk, when you move back a little bit, it gets a bit quieter. Oh, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Just um, sit on top of that mic a little bit. No, it's not quite. <laughs> just kind of yeah halfway there so i really want to kind of take it back to potentially for us is like things we picked up on a long time ago just because we were looking which the only reason we're informed is because we bumped into people who are informed it's like it's who you bump into isn't it you know it's um the circles you're moving but i want to go back to people who for example who have been on a course fresh from a course in the UK, we have like level three, four, and five, and it seems the higher the courses go, the more manual therapy techniques, the special techniques you learn. So with regards to fascia, we'll go back to you, Walt, for a second. What are some of the typical things? I think in the States, it's the same. What are the typical things which are being taught on fascia courses, which are either probably less true than they're taught or maybe physiologically impossible, which, and I need you to break this gently because there's probably a lot of people listening to this it's going to be a shock to but yeah, what are some of the things which we know probably isn't the case, which were originally kind of taught in late 90s, 2000s? Um, well, that fascia changes under our hands the way it's said to in terms of changing, you know, the the, um, the nodal points, if you're working from a trigger point perspective, or the, the concept of a fascial restriction releasing it. They're, they're all lovely metaphors, but when you try and really look at it, is that really happening? And, you know, you, you can go down some some people's rabbit holes, you know, the Stecco books, and they, they claim that all these things are happening. And, and I'm not discounting what they're saying or, or, or Tom Myers is saying or Barnes is saying totally. But how, I, I just I'm sorry. I just can't believe that there's so many different things happening under the skin the way all these educators seem to claim and not just about fascia stories but muscle stories and limb stories and nerve stories it's just 
I'm sorry, it's just, it's too far-fetched to think that somehow that person walks in our office that selected us because they know we're fascia people and that they've particularly got fascia problems. I think the universality, if that's a word, it should be, um, that there's things we do with our hands that people say, no, that's a fascial thing or that's a muscle thing that I just don't think that we can really outwardly confirm without going down these these bizarre rabbit holes of confirmation bias. And, you know, the, the fascial work, the, the things that we do with our hands that are called MFR or whatever you call it, is exceedingly helpful at times. But if you look at somebody doing muscle work, are they really doing that something that's so much different? And that's my contention is that there's common denominators to our work beyond like so far above or below however you want to look at it, the, the, the tissue we think we're involved in. And that's my basis lately for the last couple of years is looking at almost the behavioral aspect of what happens when we treat from an interpersonal perspective. Fascia science exists um, and it's cool stuff that's coming out, but it's still not really showing that, we, you know, when we poke somebody in the way we think we're poking them to affect their fascia, that it's solely their fascia that's changing. And I don't, I, I still do the things with my hands that I learned, started learning in 1982. It's just what's happening up here and what's happening between us two, me and my patient, is so dramatically different than me telling them about, you know, I know the secret science of what's wrong with their fascia. And I don't know that I answered your question, but there's so much stuff that's still being taught in fascial trainings, although I'm really far removed from that. And it's mainly, um, you know, my vicarious and dark interest in what people are still passing along that I still hear that all this crap is still being said, that it's basically to, I'm sorry, it's basically to sell books and sell courses and sell online courses, because I think people know that they're really not a great validity to what's being taught, but that is not just a problem with the fascial world, but it's a problem with the muscle world and the nerve world and almost all of manual therapy. We all drop into these little silos where we think we've got the answers and we all have answers, but is there a commonness of what's going on? And I think that's what we should all be seeking is the, those common denominators. Yeah, I think Brian Huxley in the comments says has already kind of called upon some of the names like John Barnes and Ida Rolf. So a lot of the kind of idea that we're putting our hands and using energy or heat to change the kind of density and the kind of change it from the whole into the fluid state of fascia. That was kind of, I mean, what year was Ida saying things like that in the 70s, 80s, earlier on? It's got a long time ago, wasn't it? I don't know. Ida started in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time ago. Couldn't write anything down, and at the end she was like, "I don't know," and it just yeah. everything coming from that is complete extrapolation. And I'm yeah. not people, you know, everything's kind of like the telephone game. happens with Sue. Oh, Tiny said this. I know that's not what came out of my mouth, but that's what was interpreted because humans were just weird and irrational. And I mean that in the most loving way. I'm one of these weird irrational, <laughs> you know. So. um we're all prone to our filters. Yeah. Some people are into muscle, some people are into fascia, some people are into meridian, some people are into chakras. I mean, there's so much out there. <laughs> like uh, what we're saying, it's just, it's overwhelming. And I mean, there's one person that come in, how do I know, do I treat this person meridians and that person's fascia when what I'm doing with my hands looks exactly the same. And um, in my 
transformational journey, the more I thought about this, the more ludicrous it became that there's all these models that exist. And I'm one of these, I'm like, I'm like a bit of an experience junk. I want to learn. And then I also want to know why. You know, some things can't be explained. I just have this incessant, like, peel back the next layer. Okay, what's under that? Why this? How do I know? All right, I learned muscles when I started school. Now I have fascia, but I'm doing this. How do I know which one I'm affecting? And then I took this cool shiatsu class that tells me it's meridians, but I'm still doing this thing, right? Then I see rolfing, and I'm like, that's massage without oil. <laughs> it's, it's, well, and I, I, I mean, um, this is not with, with care to all rolfers, but it's just different ways of playing with our hands, and all of it's cool, and now Basically, I find a way to move them that A, doesn't hurt people, and B, is agreeable to the client. One client might like this pokey feeling, one client might like this stretchy feeling, and somebody might just like this slow fold, and there's all these ways when I realize that I'm working with a person and not tissues that, that transforms. And ever since I shifted away from the fascia model, right, uh, I will fully say I've hurt people as a practitioner. And I, I don't hear too many people admit that, but I've been doing this for close to 25 years. Anybody that's been doing this long, if you haven't made mistakes, I don't buy it. Mm. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I will admit that. And one of the reasons why I did that is because I thought I had to target this tissue. There's a certain amount of force to make this change. Was it intentional? Oh, it's all about intention. BS. I've had great intentions and for people. Right? Um, because my target, what my understanding was inaccurate. So the story does matter. Right? The stories mm-hmm. we tell ourselves do matter because they will affect our interactions with human beings, not their tissues, right? They're human beings and, um, and my capacity to listen to human beings, right? So, um, so I'm better off for leaving a narrative and so are my clients. Right? Nobody misses the painful stuff. Nobody misses it. A couple do. They want that. And I'm like, then I'm not the right fit for you. I wish them well and hope they find that person that is good for them. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so. so, yeah, you mentioned a few things there. I want to touch on that as well because there's, there's obviously it's part of a bigger picture. But if we, if because a, a lot of therapists, no, let's go, I'm going to ask this question. Why is it so important that we understand that we're not actually changing the state of fascia that we're not breaking it down you've already touched on a few reasons with regards to if we think we're breaking it then we're going to use as much force as possible because that's going to be better mm-hmm. so i want to first of all what are some of the dangers of following this model where we're restructuring somebody their tissue let's go on that first of all you mentioned the pain but yeah um back to you what, what do you think are some of the dangers of following this kind of outdated theory that we are lengthening and changing and puppeteering someone back to how they're supposed to be well, you know, the model of MFR that I learned was not a particularly painful model. Sometimes it could be, but um, it really emphasized that it doesn't have to hurt to help. Um, but what's what are the dangers of it? Um, oh, gosh, that's a hard one, because in some ways, if my patient comes in believing it's all about their fascia, I don't know that I have to totally, like, pry their fingers off of that belief. Because the goofy part is, is I'm still doing much of what I did with my hands, you know, 30 years ago. It's just my understanding of what's happening is different, which then revolves, it, it turns back into how I interact with my patient. I do think that, that 
one of the digs against manual therapy over the years, especially in the physical therapy um, community, is it's a passive intervention. And, you know, I think Ch Chad Cook's recent paper, The Demonization of Manual Therapy, has been maligned in a lot of circles for a lot of different things. And it was based off of his debate with Adam Meekins. Um, but I think it has been demonized. And part of it is that the passive quality that manual therapy and massage are often seen is that it's dependency building. If somebody gets better from us, they have to come back to receive more. I think that's crap because I think exercise-based interventions can be just as passive um, in terms of dependency building where you need to come back to me each week for new exercises. But um, I, I do think that there's there's danger or, or at least some, it's not the most healthy thing to, to be telling a patient that there's something wrong with them that nobody else knows about except me as a highly trained fascial therapist. And I do think that's number one, it's deceptive and dishonest. And I, I think that it's also really inaccurate. It's implausible to say that we know the secret. And unfortunately, post hoc fallacy is a, is a part of our lives, right? Yeah. Um, I learned from a post hoc fallacy like many of us did where, okay, your fascia is all bound down and here's this supposed science that says why. And then we do things and we see people get better. And the story gets validated that, oh, we think that their fascia was all screwed up. So therefore it must have been because the person got better. And I think it's so easy to impart post hoc fallacies in our patients, which really leads them into almost worshiping us as as the only people that can help them. And, you know, it, it goes down a lot of really ugly and messy um, ways in terms of how we help people. The one thing I really don't want to do is there's a lot of real, you know, supportive fascial followers and they're, they're seeing these wonderful results with not only the science in, in the background they've been taught, but then the tools, the hands-on stuff. It's like, well, why, why shouldn't I believe my, my model? Why shouldn't I believe my educator? It's like, it's not that you have to totally, um, you know, wash them away. It's just see that there's, there's blended approaches. It's not all about the tissue, right? We're treating a human being. We can't rip off their skin and select their fashion for treatment or their whatever. Diane Jacobs says, well, the only thing we know about is that we're treating their skin. So can we create a model based solely on skin? And I think Diane has a lot of brilliant observations, but none of us, us yet have cornered the market on having all the answers. And, you know, the fascia folks have some, Diane's got some, I've got some, Tanya's got some, man, I'm sure you have some, but you know what, this is a work in progress and I'll die not knowing. And it's, it's okay to say, we don't know, but let's see if we can help you become a my, my whole manual therapy approach, and I'm a, you know, a big movement geek and, um, um, is, is to help people get to a point where they're comfortable enough to move because that's what, you know, to move relative to their own normal. And I, I, I'm not a big believer that it takes, you know, I gotta go to the gym and do all, you know. I was gardening today, I got my movement. That's, mm -hmm. that's movement, you know. Do something with your body that you enjoy. Now, um, um, there's things we do know about the flash model that I think kind of, you know, if, if somebody still says that we can affect it, I want to, you know, scratch my head. And, 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 so we need to, further, but. can you build on, Tanya, can you build on Walt's point of like there's a human being at the end? I mean, this is one of the big things about moving away from just the thinking the issues in the tissue sort of thing, but. Can you build on that with what doors are opened when we do move away from thinking all of this problems because there's an adhesion here? 
because that's what the courses kind of do. It always surprises me when people go on this course, they'll say something like, wow, can you believe it? The last five people, the patients I've seen, haven't got what I learned on the course. And for me, that's just like, well, what's that telling you? Is that coincidence or are you just looking for what you've been taught? You know, I'm, I'm Latin. We grew up with all kinds of superstition. I could say somebody has felt better with somebody waving chicken feathers over them. Is that, is that the mechanism that's working? What's working, right? I feel better after a hot shower. I feel better after hanging out with friends, even if my body is tight and, and wound up, right? There's all kinds of ways I can feel better. Now, for a lot of people, that meaningful interaction happens with a, you know, a therapist, a manual therapist. We don't do talk therapy, but, um, but a manual therapist, a human being treating them with unconditional positive regard and contacting them in a way that their brain agrees is beneficial, right? We know touch is energy. There's no, I mean, does it, is it work? Does it have that effect in 100% of cases? Absolutely not. Nothing does, right? People are like, manual therapy has temporary results. So does exercise. So does brushing your teeth. So does bathing, right? Show me anything, right, that, that is permanent. Um, so I think that's a pretty ridiculous argument. And sometimes when people say manual therapy doesn't work or sucks, I think they just kind of suck at manual therapy. I think that's more of what it is. And it's not your bag. That's cool. There's all different kinds of people. I refer out. There is a client I had. I, I wish I'm not going to make that. Maybe some people make the claim that they can help everybody. I'm not going to say that. There are times and effective. There are times they're not. I would like people to see a lot of times. We're like, oh, but it helps when I do this. Also, look at the times when it doesn't. I don't think it's possible that one approach helps everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. You know, um, I would love that to be the case, but um, helping people not have fear around their bodies, their movements. When people are told, oh, you're is this or that, and you need 10 or 15 sessions. I don't believe that either. I think clients slash patients have an inherent understanding when something's going to work for them. They are the ultimate experts on their own bodies, right? I might just help articulate things, maybe shine a flashlight of something they might have not seen before, right? So last week there was somebody I couldn't help. I didn't want to waste their time. I didn't say you needed more massages because it was a Tension headache. It was migraines are complex, right? Instead, I offered other things, maybe different types of movement, other kind of somatic. I mean, there's other approaches that can do. That's how yeah. I them is debunking that what you need is more massage. If you find it beneficial in a pinch, of course, I'm here. Go to somebody else. Doesn't we're here for that? But it it was not honest, right? So, and a lot of these this special model is intent on on and and it's not intentionally roping somebody in. That's just how that's just the story that we're sold. You have to keep coming back. Um it's turning people off to manual therapy. If I'm working with something, you know, accessibility is a big deal for me. Somebody's put aside their chunk of money to invest in me. I'm gonna say you have to keep doing this. I understand times are hard for people. My job is to see how much can I help you with the time that I have. And if you find benefit, budget allows, of course, my doors are open. Happy to help you. 
help you if it jives with you. But um, I think that actually prevents people. I've heard this from clients. Oh, but then I have to keep getting more massages. No, you don't. My job is to, you come in, and I also want to help you do things on your own, your movement or, or self-massage or working with another therapist or finding something on YouTube, building, you know, whatever works with their budget. But um, that's another thing with the, with the model that I find a bit off-putting. And then I think it actually hampers the progress of manual therapy because a lot of people don't have a budget for the 10 series, right? I'm sorry, my great my great grandmother's never had one series. She lived to be 100 something years old. Nobody touched her fascia. She's fine. So nobody's going to die without, you know, fascial intervention. It's not that. It's beautiful work. I think it has a great capacity to help people, especially with. Um, um, I think that's like one of the reasons why fascia work has been so has, has stood around for so much, and it's still sold. It's because it's such an effective model for fixing, for the fixing model. It's lovely to have the idea where you come in, your shoulders aren't level. I've got the tool to make them level. That's going to sort out your pain. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mechanic's dream, isn't it? For someone who's focused on that, you've got a blueprint. You've got an answer for everyone that comes in. You do an assessment. You see if something's uneven. You've got the tools with this to change their fascia and therefore change the way. And you take that out. And I think sometimes that makes therapists scared because often the business model, not not always with bad intent in fact i like to think as i get older it's 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 the majority of people haven't got bad intent at all they just love the idea they can help someone and this is a lovely model which makes you believe you empowers you doesn't it so taking that away often makes therapists feel like i'm not a model anymore what am i supposed to do how can i say i don't know but that's what we've got to kind of do isn't it we've got to change our chip with regards to what we're doing we're not mechanics because we're not working with a car we're working with a human who's kind of complex and not complicated and there's a big difference so how do you how do you help therapists because you're both educators how do you help help change that chip where you help the therapist still feel empowered but taking that kind of blueprint away from them and allowing them to embrace the unknown and ask questions and try and find the answers from what the client says as opposed to what their body does or can't do uh, well i can i can tell you my own process was really hard when i stopped when people really like pull the chair out from under me and said, you know what, it doesn't matter if you balance the pelvis because the pelvis isn't going to stay balanced and the vast majority of people don't have a balanced pelvis, which was completely um, removed from when I had a patient in front of me and I saw their pelvis was torsion and they had low back pain. And I applied the recipes that I learned in MFR and we quote unquote balanced the pelvis and they got better. I mean, that was like classic conditioning that I saw the direct result of my interventions were balancing the pelvis through fascial work of course and but when i start when i started hearing those jerks on soma simple tell me that that stuff doesn't matter and i thought they were jerks when they were telling me about it i thought they were a lot worse than that but i'm going to keep this clean um, that it really like no because every time i balance the pelvis the person's pain gets better so i guess it, i just basically at one point realized that i was doing other things and it's like what happened if i didn't check their pelvic alignment or leg leg discrepancy. And what if I just work with the person? And I basically, I think we're all taught recipes. And sometimes they're extremely um, 
convoluted or, or multi-step recipes that you need to take multiple tiers of training to get to be an expert to apply those recipes. And then you go have success. And we are such biased human beings because we just see our successes and not the questionable things, right? And once I stopped worrying if a person's was, pelvis was balanced, I saw that I was still helping people. There's a study that was pivotal to me. And it was done in 1992 by a researcher by the last name of Bennell. And what this Bennell wanted to know was, we know that 2% of the population has a scoliosis, which typically results in a torsion pelvis. But what Bennell wanted to know was, what about the rest of us? Okay, what about the balance of the population? How do they look when we look at their spines? And he found in a really well done study that 98.4% of us have a skeleton or a spinal asymmetry to some degree, but only 2% of the population hits that threshold with the scoliosis. And the more I started to extrapolate that data, and I realized that 98.4% of the people that come into my office and walking out out there are walking around with skeletal asymmetries. And you know what? They're absolutely living a lovely life without the things that I think based on my MFR training, that the pelvis must be balanced or that freaking person will never live a normal life. And that really, it created a ton of dissonance in my brain. But when I started realizing that all these things that I was taught were well-intended recipes, just like, you know, if you're a role for, if you're a massage therapist, you learn these recipes and sequences and logical ways that make things make sense. We apply them and it works. And again, post hoc fallacy is just so strong we can't ex extract ourselves from that. What I did was I stopped worrying about the details as much and realized I was still helping people. Advice, if you're looking for advice, it's like if you care about this, if you care what Tanya and I are talking about, then maybe fascia doesn't matter quite as much. Start experimenting. In the beginning, when your pendulum starts to swing, you're really insecure and you really suck for a while. It's not because you don't have the tools. It's because... It's your own self-confidence. It's like, I don't know what I believe in anymore. But after a while, when I started believing that I don't really know everything, I think that's when I really started to kind of to climb back up and see that I can be effectual without basically selling people on that their, their bodies are wreck and they need me to fix it. Really good. I just want to one thing because I'm conscious it's a really important point. You've mentioned it a couple of times now, this post-hop fallacy, because when you are in that, or did you say this kind of suck period, you look for anything to get you back to the recipes and you start clinging onto anything. So there is this belief that, hold on, I'm doing this and it's working. So who are you to tell me that it's not working? My people are walking out feeling much better and I'm having success. So can you just expand on what the post hoc fallacy is and why therapists are so prone to it? The, the, the classic definition is that the, the rooster crows um, early in the morning and the sun comes up. So the post hoc fallacy would say that the rooster caused the, the sun to come up, which of course is absurd. Right. But I'm going to use it applied in the fascial narrative. I, I said it before that that here's all the science about fascia, Matt. And then here's how you do it. And then we apply those principles and damn, people get better. So we believe the story we were told. But again, it's not just fascia. It's massage. It's muscles. It's nerve. It's everything that somehow somebody explains it to us in such a logical way that hits those parts, those chips in our brain that you called about before, um, that we say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And look at the results that I have. And it therefore validates the story. It doesn't. It, it doesn't. When we touch someone, there's dozens, hundreds, thousands of stories of why we can be helpful. But yet somehow we pigeonhole 
pigeonhole it into this narrow little realm of fascia or muscles or nerves or limb. Fill in the blank of the pathology of your choosing because we all do that. We all reach for these things that seem to make logical sense. And I'm not saying you have to like let go of all that, but if you start looking outside your own rabbit hole, what other people are doing, there's a lot of dissonance that's created, but hopefully an opportunity for learning to see what other people think. And I still believe that we're still searching for the common denominator. Why is it that manual therapy is helpful? And you look at papers by, by Joe Bialowski, for instance, he talks about the multifactorial impact of manual therapy, not the tissues as the receiver, but almost like the tissues as the signalers to higher centers. And whether they're central nervous system centers, autonomic centers, or behavioral and contextual centers, that we're working with a complex individual that somehow someone has narrowed this person down to simply a dysfunctional tissue, which is really sad because we bought it and we continue to sell it. There is, uh, um, to kind of piggyback on the scoliosis point, like, and this is another thing that I'm really starting to look at, like I've had a dear friend, but many clients who come in with, you know, scoliosis, 20 Should I come forward a bit, Tony? That's uh, it, thank you. Um, I don't miss anything, that's all. Um, clients who have come in with significant scoliosis, what do they come in for? I just want to relax, right? No, and I'm not saying that there can't be, you know, back pain associated with it, but also people without scoliosis experience back pain. Now, a lot of the, I've also seen this, I'm not sure how far of a pendulum swing this is in, in fascia land, but believing that through changing fascia somehow this thing is this structural presentation which is pretty normal you know it's not uncommon um can be changed i mean imagine being this person with no complaint other than to relax right to feel good you know, bolster for comfort all these things then being handled in a way as if something wrong with you. It's, it's extremely ableist. And I think, um, and I know people aren't doing it intentionally, but it is. And you make people really self-conscious where they don't need to be. Um, and that's not, that was not their request, right? That was not their request. Um, and again, it's normal. It's just a, a difference. And um, like, well, I was one of those people that used to pride myself on being able to detect the pelvis tilt by, off by like a millimeter yeah. and then i forget the study where they find cadaver studies where they look at the at the iliac crest on people one actually has more bone on it than another side so the skeletons are, and that's what we're feeling we're either feeling that or our hands are hallucinating it's another thing that people don't want to acknowledge i'd like to think i'm great at palpating is my palpation always on no, and that took me a really long time to be able to see that. Now I, I think I feel a thing, I have to check in with the client. I don't know how many people out there in YouTube or Facebook land, and like really think about it, let's really walk this back. And imagine yourself as the client on a table, not the practitioner, where somebody's like, oh, you got something there, and you're like, I don't feel anything. <laughs> and on the other hand, you don't feel anything, and the patient or client says, yeah, that's, where I'm feeling. So just like we're prone to visual uh, or, yeah, visual illusions, um, auditory illusions, I don't know if you've ever been sitting somewhere and you're like, did you hear that? Nobody, you actually, your brain generated a sound, 
nothing else was going on. That can happen palpation-wise. And then um, I had this awesome entry-level student in the military. When I bring this up in class, he said, thank you so much for bringing it up. It's something that's discussed how there's a military medic and pulses are taken, even on somebody who's no longer alive, right? The emotions involved in it, like people will feel a pulse. That person's, you know, no longer has life in them. They swear they feel a pulse, right? You put somebody in, put us practitioners in a room, dim light, you've been at it for how many hours a day. There is a magical feeling to human connection. It's really beautiful, you know? So I can see, like, all these images, colors conjured. Nobody's saying that's not cool. It's just how relevant is it to the person? How much am I projecting my sensations onto somebody else? And um, you really need to check in with them, right? If it happens to agree, awesome. Party time, great. Cool. If not, what matters is what the person feels, not what I'm projecting. It's Fasha this year. Basically, now I also, yeah. oops, sorry, no, no, no. I also think palpation is such a loaded concept because I was so freaking good at feeling finding patients' fascial restrictions. But if you hand that, that patient to the next person, they're going to feel the knots, the spasm, the trigger point that facilitates segments, the weakness. They're going to feel all this stuff. You know, even if we're good palpators, what are we palpating? And I just came across in one of Leon Schottel's book, 2008, he was talking about the problem with pattern recognition is we get so used to, and that's part of what we're doing when we work from these models of fascia is we're recognizing patterns that we've seen in the past. But if you can't objectively look at what you're seeing, what you're feeling, and you jump to those conclusions too quickly, you assume you're right about pattern recognition. And often... It still leads with good results, but when I touch somebody, my brain is completely biased by what I've learned and what I've experienced in terms of what we're palpating. And unfortunately, that is just lost on so many people. It was lost on me because, no, you're not feeling a trigger point because they don't exist. Fascial restrictions exist. Therefore, my entire world becomes this this filtered through these glasses of fascia world. And again, fascia work, quote-unquote fascia work, I wish it was seen as a style of working that we use with patients, right? Versus the ability to singularly and selectively change fashion. That's the distortion that's been built up by, you know, decades now of education and then perpetuation of that education that conflating what, we, you know, the, the thought of what's happening under our hands with how people are feeling better. Yeah, great points. There's some really nice comments coming through. Um, from people now. I mean, there's one, Martin Howe, my um, good friend and colleague he used to work with, he's kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, he's paid a lot of money to have his pelvis balanced and in, in commas and leg length corrected over the years in the 90s with a Cairo. Um, it's, it's, I hate to think that, I don't know, I couldn't live, I used to be very cynical and I think once, since I've had kids, I've kind of got a little bit less cynical and kind of enjoyed life and it gives you a bit of a meaning and stuff. But I like to think that most therapists are doing it with the best of intentions. There's some that are not and are paying for their Lamborghini outside and laughing all the way to the bank. But again, like you say, I think if therapists who are good people, they're altruistic, they've got empathy, they want to touch people for a living, not many people want to do that, especially if you're a massage therapist and you've got some hairy guy and oil and through your fingers, it's not something you really choose to do and get paid not much for it. So they're great people, 
But if more therapists stopped and managed to just reverse it, like you said, Tanya, and say, what if this was me? You know, it's like when we get injured, we're the first to suddenly realize we think the worst, don't we? I mean, I'm a runner. If I get a pain underneath my blue toe or something, I'm thinking that's it, stress fracture. I know it is. Even though I'm aware of all this catastrophization and kind of like, I still believe inside that there's something really serious going on. Well, we kind of forget that when we're therapists because we become these fixers and these powerful people who are going to, but we're filling our, I love what you said, Tanya. If we put ourselves into the position of the patient, it's scary stuff when someone says, oh, this is a bit weird. Oh, you've got your pelvic force collapsed. And we wonder why they're going in pain. You know, where we've used metaphors and language. We've talked about that before. Um, yeah. There's a book, I can't remember before I was in Masashi. It's a Norman Cousins book. And I don't know how much of it, but um, Norman Cousins, Anatomy of an Illness. The only thing I remember about the book was a quote that I think planted in my brain the ability to be able to change my mind, which I think is a, not an easy thing for people to do, especially, you know, longer. Um, so funny, when I'm, when I'm teaching entry-level students, they have no problem. They're like, oh, okay, cool. We're moving on to something else. Like, this was a thing. It's the people that are kind of saddled with, um, say, like almost like the curse of experience. It's really hard. Learning is easy. Unlearning so hard. So hard. Um, and two quotes. I like quotes. But um, I think it was Dr. Crispin. I can't remember his first name. Crispin said, the most dangerous three words in medicine in my experience. Mm. And another one was a Norman um, Norman Cousins from Anatomy of an Illness. If anything, just read kind of the, the book jacket, it's in there. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, this is not verbatim, but something to the effect of uh, be careful what you tell your patients because they just might believe you. Mm, lovely. Um, um, and you know, I, I empathize, and I understand that sometimes the attacks <laughs> on people who are, you know, Facebook is just like a bunch of like, turns into like gorillas and feces at each other. And, um, I understand that people feel it's a personal attack. I did, right? When I was like, you know, I felt dumb. I felt, how could I, and then I felt bad. How could I have told people this? But of course, we evolve from that and you know what you know and when you know better you you do better or at least you seek to do better and um just in case for anybody out there listening it's normal to feel those things but that's not the case right you, um um and don't let that put up a wall to mind to continue learning more information changes and we've learned more about the brain and body in the past 20 years than in all of humanity combined and as technology develops, we'll learn more. Maybe next week they'll say, hey, class is the magic thing. <laughs> and I will change all my course materials as a result, right? Uh, uh, I'm not stuck on it. I'm just stuck on being a better service to people and not scaring them, having them think there's something wrong with them. That there is it. Pain is pretty normal. Mm. Um, very normal part of life. Yeah. Let's let's focus on because we're slightly running out of time. I want you two to talk a little bit more about and maybe with your students or but it's such a, it is a tumultuous time when you are being challenged. And like you said, especially with social media, it's the death because you read these texts and you read the emoticons. I hate emoticons. You know, when there's a discussion going on and people are like 
sticking their tongue out and winking an eye and it's like that can be so violent if you're just watching that thread and it's like everyone's laughing at you imagine if it happened in real life i mean you, you just disappear but when you do get over it and the, the coin does drop and it's actually just opens so many doors doesn't it and it's just suddenly you can unlearn anything you want and you can change from day to day and it creates a thirst and ability to digest new information and an openness self-critiquing yourself focus on your personal experience and, the, and what you see in students when the when when the anger and the frustration and disappointment does go how, what does it suddenly how does it change your life as a therapist oh creativity you just get to be a lot more creative i get to learn more i get to learn from my clients i learn more from them than anybody they have the answer like what helps you and just by i don't say anymore i just ask them questions like, oh, why do you think that is well, mm. what could you do? What else could you do outside of here? That could be, oh, well, I like this. I do feel better after a hot shower and a stressful day. Okay, do more of that. So Brilliant. now yeah. already a purveyor of obvious information. <laughs> but they know what's up. And then that, and I just help them have less fear around it. And also make sure that you know, ruling out red flags and all that, that they have gotten. So that's so valid. It makes you a better listener. And we know through studies and things that listening to the client, they'll tell you eventually what's wrong with them and how to fix them and stuff. Yeah, it stops you from, yeah. Um, and Walt, talk about the joyous when the coin drops. Yeah, I think, I, I think the, um, the, the my biggest transition is instead of me being the person that tells them, and Tanya just kind of said this, or you said it, instead, instead of me being the person that tells them what's wrong with them and what should be done, I've learned to ask the question, what do you feel? And what do you think we should do about this? What do you feel is what, you know, it's, it's to me, it's about shared decision-making. It's about sharing power, meaning I put my hands on somebody instead of me being in charge of fixing it. I put my hands on somebody as a means to start a verbal and nonverbal communication. It's like, okay, patient, right now, when I do this, what are you feeling? Does this feel relevant? Does it feel safe? Does it feel useful? Um, and if not, how could we best manage this? I, I, I want to give a real quick vignette, if I could. Um, I taught a class um, in Salt Lake City this weekend, and, and a person came in, um, one of the, the, the students' patients came in, and she was suffering from some TMJ issues. And lots of dental, failed dental work, and lots of failed therapeutic work, okay, where the physical therapist hurt her with aggressive um, intraoral work, um, did dry needling, which just sent her up the wall, right? So for some reason, she wanted to be the demo in this in this class, even though... I'm a physical therapist, but it was it was really fascinating because instead of me doing my normal, well, my past normal of doing that intraoral work where we go and do the, and I say air quotes pterygoid because um, that's what people call it, we did something where um, I'll often do it with my patient, and the first thing I do when I touch them is I don't do anything, meaning I touch them without starting. I touch them to allow them to accommodate to my touch, to figure out if I'm safe or unsafe, all those things, but... We went into that space where she had been hurt by oral surgeries, but she had been hurt by an aggressive physical therapist in the past. And I lightly laid my finger on there, and then I invited her to put her hand over mine and show me what to do. And she said, I don't really know. I said, well, how hard would you like me to push? And, you know, she started experimenting, and she started experimenting with pressures as well as direction. And it was, to me, the embodiment of co-creation of a session. Instead of me being the expert um, in charge of everything, she was the expert in charge of allowing my touch to help her. And boy, that was just, that's kind of how, what embodies my approach anymore. Not, sometimes it's literally the, having them help me help them. 
hands-on, but it's never me doing things to them that they're not having full input into. Um, I don't know whether I really answered your questions or went off on my, one of my political tangents, but to me, that was, in, in a nutshell, I, how I believe myofascial release, if you want to continue to call it that, can evolve um, in let the patient and you co-create this intervention. You know, Brian had asked, well, I don't think that, I think we need to get rid of the name. And it's like, I don't know that that's possible. You know, there's too much invested in public eye as well as clinician's eyes. It's like, okay, can we at least make it small m, small r, myofascial release to say, here's a style of work that we call myofascial release. I would love, I, I switched last year from calling my work myofascial release to manual therapy. I'd like to make the full transition and call it Steve, right? <laughs> I want to call my work Steve because it has absolutely no mental connotation of any kind of body work or work in general. Um, it's like, okay, we call it Steve because I have to call it something, but let's call this a therapeutic engagement and see if touch can help you. It w I don't think many clinicians would sign up for my Steve classes. So I call it manual therapy, but there's a lot of disassociations with it because to some, manual therapy is an aggressive adjustment that a chiropractor can get. And that's their mental thought of what manual therapy is. So until I get brave enough to change the name to Steve, at least I'm more comfortable moving on from myofascial release to manual therapy. Steve. Steve, Steve. If you made it an acronym, if you put little dots in between, no, no, people no, would no think acronym. it's still for no something. Yeah. No more acronyms, Matt. I'm gonna <laughs> but S T dot, dot that would be great. Um, no, really valid point. point. Really valid point. Make nice, nice. Yeah. Let's make nice, nice. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so look, um, we're coming up to kind of nine o'clock. Um, I'm still. I really love some of the ideas you've had and I'm hoping people who are listening to this back can replay it again on the podcast and listen to some of the ideas of how to help um, therapists if you're an educator how to help the coin drop for therapists and also help the coin drop for patients as well because if patients have come from another therapist and they've been filled with these ideas that they've got out of alignment or they've got this going on the glutes don't fire all this language we've talked about in the past how to help them to delete that kind of like catastrophizing neurotag thing going on but what are your, obviously you guys are involved in education um, because you're passionate about helping therapists do this, become better and help more people. So Walt, you've got stuff coming on, uh, you're over to the UK soon, aren't you? You come to the UK soon, aren't you? I am coming to the UK um, in March, hopefully uh, COVID withstanding. Um, oh, my little plug here. I'm going to be teaching my lower body class in Birmingham. Um, I got to reverse things the way you say it over there, four to five March. That's how you say it over there. Say it the right way. Yeah, that's the best way to do it. Yeah, say it the right way. Okay, so four to five March in, in Birmingham. Then I'm down in London um, March 7th to 8th. Sorry, I regress. March 7th to 8th to teach my um, my voice and swallowing class. And then I'm over in Bristol uh, to teach my upper body class on the 11th and 12th of March. Brilliant, March. Big month. So Birmingham will probably be with Mike Grice then, I imagine. Yep. And then uh, Bristol will be with Anna Maria, who wasn't here tonight or still isn't here tonight at the school. Yep. Um, and the whereabouts in London are you for the other part of the work you do with the voice? And... Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm in London. I, I don't. I don't no, more than that. I get where they put me. All on my website, but uh, <laughs> I think Tanya, you took my voice and swallowing class. That's what I, I loved, loved it. That's actually, it. and I got to be totally blunt. That's actually become yeah. my passion. 
That is your passion, I can see from following here. Somebody here did ask about it, actually. We haven't had time to And honestly, it's not because I don't like working with massage therapists and physical therapists, but there is so much competition in the manual therapy community for all of the stuff that we're talking about today, MFR and all this stuff. And it's just, it it gets, my head hurts in terms of how much competition, not just competition for money, but competition for ideas um, where the the voice and and swallowing community, and it's not just speech pathologists, there's there's almost an absence of dissonance coming from there. And you can start with... The beginner, which is just so freaking refreshing to somebody which doesn't necessarily have preconceived notions about, you know, all these different things. So um, anyway, but but I am teaching upper body and lower body. Not that I don't enjoy that work, but um, um, I've just I've seen my my interest shift. And I got a book coming up next year by a UK publisher. um, And that's about the voice and swallowing disorders work, a person centered perspective. And that's really who I am now. So looking forward to the release of that. So I've got something else to start blathering out about. Fantastic. So there you go, Leslie. I'm sorry I didn't approach that early on because I knew if I started walked on that topic, we wouldn't talk about fashion again. <laughs> and I would want to listen to it. I wouldn't be able to shut them up because I want to hear about it. Uh, but yeah, that's going on in London in mid-March sometime. So go to um website for you, Walt. Is... Waltfruit.com is the easiest. There you go. Easiest. That'll take you through to all the details of courses and information. Um, so yeah. Exciting. I'm going to do my best to try and... um I say that now and then commit myself. I'm going to try and get a, a card from the family card to try and come and see you somewhere in March. It'd be lovely to catch up. Tanya, what have you got going on? Big educator as well. What have you got going on? So, um, I'm working very hard on completing pinpoints, pinpoint DNM, as in Dave, Nancy, uh, and Mickey. Max. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, Nancy, Matt. Um, I kept the name DNM just so you know. Um, out of honor for my teacher, Diane, who has helped and so kind and generous and helping me sculpt this for, for another generation. Um, by that, I have openbodywork.com, which is a class. Anybody can take it, any kind of manual therapist or not. It's open. I've had laypersons in with, in, with, um, with body workers, and it's got a lot of Thai influence in it. So we just get really creative in there and it's a lot of fun can you repeat those two web i'll make sure it goes into the notes what are the two websites again open open bodywork um is is one style of manual therapy and it has a lot to do with with therapists learning to listen to themselves i've I've had people come in that have been doing it for 20 years have pain in their body and after a couple uh, after a couple days that doesn't happen anymore so that's, um, I love to see longevity. We lose a lot of good therapists, like at that three to five year mark, just when you start learning stuff because your bodies are in pain. Um, and that's got a lot of movement based stuff in it. And we get that roots in family, isn't it? Was it your great grandmother or grandmother? Or one more time, didn't that hasn't that got roots in in practice from by your grandmother? Was it? I can't remember her name now. Oh, oh, no, my 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 great grandmother, yeah. Had, hold a candle to what she did but she was you know something like line of Curandera in South America so uh yeah not so much she was a manual therapist so she did just like bone setting and all that stuff and um I'm sure the explanatory model is very different <laughs> from, from science-based but I do honor that part of my I read like the meditative approach and just connecting with the person and that yeah beautiful so, um, which we all do that in some way and then mm. 
can go to pinpointeducation.com or pinpointdnm in particular that has info about the workshop and I've been working really hard at uh, do, um, getting the website up so right now I'm writing curriculum juggling a practice mm-hmm. build like programming designing all that stuff so Hopefully they can find help. Yeah, I can see how busy you are with the Florida back set just behind you. I can see you really off your feet, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, but people are, um, I mean, a lot of people in the room I know, maybe um, people listening to podcast aren't, but um, Diane Jacobs has got some big following over here in the DMM, DNM, the dermoneuromodulation. That's going to be coming quite topical as well, and it's love to hear you involved in that. Um, Ray Allen, who is also quite big on social media, championing that, is coming over to Mike Grice's. Um, actually, Ray Allen is going to be a guest in January because um, uh, he's doing a chat with Mike Grice. So, yeah, people will be familiar with that. So that's great if they can go to your website and hear your part in, in, in delivering that. That would be great. Um, smashing. Okay, then. Look, it's 9.07. I've kept you past what I promised. Um, past your bedtime. I know. I'm sorry about that. I feel I can give you both of this because I know that you're both really learned, experienced, been through the mill, come out shining. But words, final words of wisdom for both of you, for therapists who are about to embark on the change. What would that be? I'll put you on the spot here. You have something really beautiful to say. Who wants to go first? Um, Be broad. Be broad and look at all that's out there because if you just... If you just dump yourself down one more rabbit hole, I think you're just repeating the same mistake, if you'll allow me to call it that. Um, but we end up, I, you know what, I did it. I studied model after model after model, and then you realize there's so much out that everybody has to share. But what are the common denominators? And that's what I look for. And I think the common, den- I do know the common denominators are not the tissue that we think we're having secretive access to. It's a human being we're working with. And you know, follow up with models like that. Tony, you've had 15 seconds now to think of something deep. Keep asking questions. Nice. Keep asking questions. Keep asking, questioning yourself, not in a doubtful way, but in an introspective, reflective way, and um, demand more of your educators and that they keep up to date. And that, that That's our job, right, is to deliver the most accurate information available. Um, And I invite everybody to hold people to that. In one more thing. Hold me to that. You know, so, yeah. In my experience, three dangerous words, (laughs) it's often not easy to challenge your educator. Not Um, true. At least least in the models that I train with, if you challenge the educator, you're ostracized, you're bullied, you're shamed. And... If that's your model, it's like find a different find a different mentor, right? I mean, th- is that really what you want to be doing? And I hope it's not like that in the UK, um, but it, it is unfortunately here in the United States. Yeah. I um, my students will be the first first day of class. I tell them, challenge me. Yeah, ask me for oh. evidence. If I don't have it, I will sit down. Please bring it to me. And I have yeah. changed some stuff when students have brought it to my attention. Challenge Definitely, sort of a healthy educator here. Yeah. Definitely. Right. Thanks, guys. Just a reminder here from Gary Benson to all STA members, please support our members' prize draws in the STA 12 Days of Christmas posts on social media streams. I've been seeing them. Gary, as always, is delving deep into his pockets and just throwing free stuff away. So make sure you're spreading all of that, people. There's loads of stuff all over social media. Um, And so, yeah, just... um, 
for me to say thank you once again, Walt Fritz, for joining us, giving up your time, and to Tanya Velasquez. Thank you. Um, Thanks, Walt. Stick around. I'm going to sign out here. So, uh, but stick around so I can say thank you for you in person. Don't disappear when I say goodbye to everyone. Um, everyone who is listening, um, I'll, I'll get this podcast out as soon as I can um, to give you time to think about joining us live on the 21st because that's when I really want to do the other great way of learning is just talking with your fellow colleagues putting stuff out there have the confidence to either come and join us in the comments section where you don't have to show your face but if you would like to come up on cam and talk that way which should be a really great kind of confidence boosting thing you're welcome could be for two minutes five minutes probably not more than five minutes but um do that just email me matt at the sta.co.uk and we'd love to have you along um to discuss everything we've heard from um walt and tanya and last week from anna and julian um and to yeah just um get some ideas out there um, that'd be great so let me know um, and whoever does um, want to be part of that it's on Tuesday the 21st at 8 p.m. GMT everybody is welcome you don't need to be an STA member right um, thank you very much we'll be back next Tuesday with that um, like I say Walt and Tanya hang up and um, Tanya hang around I'll say thank you but you guys thanks again for joining us live and thank you for downloading the podcast and we will see you very soon uh, take care bye bye You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast. Let's talk about it.